I'm Barry Goudreau, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. Make me a deal and make it good for me. I won't get full of myself, I can't afford to be. This is small town music, this is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. Funny he could prove it Well, tomorrow's just a song away A song away A song away Hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me today in the Zoom room, uh, guitarist extraordinaire, you may know him best as a member of the band Boston, but he also has many other projects besides that group. He's got a self-titled solo album from 1980. He's got a band called Orion the Hunter, also from the 80s, and another band called RTZ. He's with us right now, and I can't wait to chat with Mr. Barry Goudreau. Barry, how are you doing? I'm doing great. By the way, my current band is Barry Goudreau's Engine Room. Barry Barry Goudreau's Engine Room? That's right. Who's in the band? Tell us about it. Uh, Well... Uh, Brian Mace is uh, the lead singer keyboard player. Brian played keys in the uh, Orion Hunter band back in the 80s and <clears throat> was also a member of RTZ, um, along with Tim Archibald. Uh, they've been with me now ever since the uh, RTZ band back in 91. So are these guys all, are you guys all New England, Boston-based musicians? Yeah, I live... You know, 20 minutes outside of town in the suburbs and all the other guys are, are local. You seem to work with the same group of guys. You find some guys that you obviously get along with personally. I, I'm sure that's number one because you got to well, hang out with each that's, other. That's always important. Sure. And then they're also stellar musicians. So you, you get the best of both worlds. So I'm glad that that's- you found these guys and that you're still working together. Well, you know, you find good people, you stick with them. That's for sure. The better the people around you are, the better it makes you look. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you look fantastic. Uh, not bad for an old guy. Yeah, huh? you, really, uh, seriously. Hair's a, a little white, but, uh, you know, look, the, ha- the hair's a little white, but you, that's right. You still have it. I'd rather have a head full of gray hair than no hair. So good for you, Barry. <laughs> uh, so, Barry, what's the new album called? The new album's called The Road. It's actually the second record we've done with the engine room. The first one was uh, Full Steam Ahead. That record was uh, kind of blues-based, where this record's a straight-ahead rock record. Uh, I was kind of looking back to my rock roots, uh, you know, early 70s uh, kind of rock, the kind of stuff that uh, I was listening to before Boston took off.
Love Will Lead the Way. Yeah. Had, had a great uh had a great 70s 80s rock vibe. And then the other track, The Road to me had a little bit of a country tinge to it kind of. Yeah, the 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 verse uh I guess you could say that has kind of a country tinge to it, but once you get to the guitar solo, look out. And this album's coming out when? What's the date? Uh, March 19th. March 19th. So you guys can, if you're listening to this right now, you can go out and buy that thing right now. I assume on your website, barrygoudreau.com and all digital media outlets. Yes. Yeah. It'll be, uh, you can go to the website to uh, purchase a physical copy or Mm -hmm. it'll be, uh, you know, on iTunes and all the other uh, digital marketplaces. Now for you, the artist, it's best if we go to your website and buy it, correct? Is that where you, you, yes, yes. Uh, You know, for me back in, I remember the album days when you bought the album and you sat and you looked at it and looked at the pictures and read all the notes. And, you know, I I don't think people are into that as much now, especially with the CD since it's so small, the lettering so small, but I think that's still important. So we have a really great uh, package for the, for the record, uh, you know, all the lyrics and, and write-ups and uh, pitches. So it's a, it's a really nice package. That's good. I'm an old school guy and uh, I, I love picking up the physical stuff and opening it and leafing through the booklet. I got to put the readers on to read the booklet now, but uh, I still, yeah, yeah, yeah we all do it. But, um, but well, yeah. In the old days we, we had the record and we also used that to uh, get the seeds out of the pot. <laughs> 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 yes, I'm sure you guys. That's that. I'm sure you guys did. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah. So Barry, I d- I definitely want to talk about uh, all the work that you've done as a solo artist. Uh, but it's impossible to interview you without talking about Boston. Sure. I mean, and you're probably sick of talking about Boston, but since I've never asked you any questions about it, <laughs> I'm a little bit excited about it. No, you know, it was. It's something I look back with you know I, it was just a tremendous time it was everything we ever could have hoped it would be uh, you know it took off so quickly and so big and the success that uh, i'm so proud to have been part of it so in 1976 when this uh debut album comes out how old of a, a gentleman are you at that point i was 26 26 so not old, but uh, not, you know, not young, but uh, I think that's a good age to, to hit success. We had started uh, putting together songs and doing demos for way back in 69, <clears throat> excuse me, which was the year that I graduated high school. Wow. I, that's the year that I met Tom Scholz. And we recorded and did demos for years, trying to get something going till finally in 75, we get some real interest in, mm-hmm. you know, the record in 76. So it was a long time coming. There were always, uh, after after years and years that the album was out, then I, I started to hear rumors that uh, that the band photo on the back weren't really the guys that were on it. I would hear that it was just Tom and 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 Brad and then uh, a drummer whose name is failing me. But Jim then, the, yes. But yeah. then when the 2006 remaster came out, it kind of had the credits for each individual song. Is is that the case? Are those 2006 credits accurate? It's always kind of a mystery to me. Yes, those are accurate. Uh, Tom redid the credits. Uh, he, obviously, he played the majority of the instruments yeah. uh, on the first record. And 
he wanted people to know that. So that's that's part of why he he redid the uh, the credits. But um, Sebastian played all the drums on the record except for one one cut. Right. And the rest of us were on the record, but uh, obviously Tom played the majority of the instruments on there. You know, you get a nice credit on the song Long Time. It says lead guitar, and then in quotes it says monster guitar. That's that's an, a nice pat on the he back. Did, he did give me a nod on that one. Yeah, and then yeah. um and then you play lead and rhythm on "Let Me Take You Home Tonight." Yeah, that's the oh. song that Brad wrote. Now I'm not like this. I'm really kind of shy. But I get this feeling whenever you walk by. I don't wanna down you, I wanna make you high. If you could see your way to me, come on and let me try. Let me take you home tonight. Mama, now it's alright. Let me take you home tonight. I'll show you sweet delight. I tell a story, uh, I've told it on this show before, when I was in high school and I would be getting ready to go to a high school dance, that's the song I would listen to, <laughs> getting ready to go in, to the high school dance. In the dance. hopes. In the hopes. But who, who, I'm not bringing anyone home to my parents' house, but uh, you know, as a kid, that's the song that uh, was a romantic song for me. So, uh, well, we uh, Actually, we uh, recorded that song out in California. <clears throat> Tom was back east of... Uh, re-recording the uh, demos and the rest of the band went out to LA <clears throat> and we actually recorded, let me take you home tonight with, without Tom. And uh, he came in later and put some organ on it and uh, work with us on the uh, recording, the vocals. Gotcha. It's still one of the best debut albums, if not the best debut album of all time. I mean, there's, n there's not a track you skip. It's, it still sounds fresh today you still wonder how did they get this guitar sound? How did they get, you know, the, the whole package was amazing. The, the cover, I mean, you didn't go into this thing half-assed. It was, uh, it was, it was quite a production. And, um, 
Well, so, you know, as far as the cover goes, I think we really lucked out on that one. <clears throat> Believe it or not, the first cover idea that the record label sent us was a head of lettuce. And we looked at it, it was like, we don't get it. What yeah. is it? They, they said, oh, it's Boston lettuce. Well, here in Boston, that's iceberg lettuce. So we, we had no idea. Yeah, I said, okay, that, that's not going to fly. That's not going to fly. And then they hired the fellow that, that uh, did the artwork and came up with that idea. I was like, yeah, the yeah, flying not, flying yeah. spaceship guitar. It's amazing. A head of oh, lettuce. Yeah. I can't think of, uh, was the record company trying to tank this album immediately? That would have been terrible. Well, <laughs> I think they were kind of cheap out is probably uh, the, the best description. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so 17 million albums sold. I imagine you have uh, some platinum and gold records hanging up somewhere in your house. I, I do, I do. Yeah. Did you just look up at one? It looked like you looked up at yeah, one. Yeah, it's in my hallway. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's quite an achievement for a kid who had a dream to, you know, play guitar, maybe have a career in music, and you finally achieve it. What uh, what age did you pick up the guitar and start playing? Oh, I started early. I started when I was uh, 11. You know, I, I had been asking uh, to, to play guitar. My parents kept putting me off, thinking, you know, it was just something I was going through. <clears throat> so we borrowed an acoustic guitar from my babysitter. And I started taking lessons. And, you know, I really applied myself. My parents realized, well, you know, he's, he's serious about this. And they bought me my first electric guitar, a 62 white Stratocaster. Nice. Which I wish I still had today. And uh, <clears throat> I just went at it with uh, with Gusto and joined my first band when I was 13. By the time I was 15, I was playing seven nights a week at the what they called the Combat Zone here in Boston, which was the uh, adult area in town and we, we played at a bar room that had go-go dancers in cages on either side of the band <laughs> now how were you able to get in there at 15 even though you were part of the band did they just think you were 18 um yeah well they knew i wasn't 18 i yeah. i was a little i was a little bitty thing you know i, I was a foot shorter than the other guys in the band <laughs> And, and the owner of the club was walking around with a cigar and he'd look up at us and say, hey, quit looking at the girls, you know, because we're, you know, dancing next to us. We're like, hey. Now, how does this fly with your parents? Or don't they know you where know, you're honestly, playing? Honestly, I look back on it. You know, I've got kids. My kids are, are grown now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I figure I was kind of a liberal parent, but I never would have let my kids do what my parents let me do. We were playing till two o'clock in the morning every night, coming home, and I'd get up in the morning and go go to school. And then we did a afternoon show on Saturdays besides. Wow. But at the same time, I was making as much money as some of my kids' parents were, my, my friends' parents were making. So it was a really learning experience because the other guitar player, <clears throat> he seemed to know every song there was. So everything we did was uh, was requests. So people would shout out a, a song title. He would look at us and say, key of E, one, two, three, four. And we just jumped in. So, I mean, for me, it was a real learning experience about, you know, being quick on your feet, so to speak. So during the day, you're in high school. And then at night, this seems like your college. 
Uh, college of rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how were you, were you keeping your grades up in high school, maintaining yeah, the schedule? You know, I, I, did, I did pretty good in high school. And, um, you know, after high school, I went to uh, Boston University. <clears throat> and um, I was trying to really apply myself. I wasn't in a band. You know, I figured, you know, I, my parents really, I was the first one to go to college in my family. And it was really important to everybody. But I met up with a, a high school friend that I had been in a band with, and he was across the river at MIT. And we thought, yeah, let's get a band together just for the fun of it. You know, he was at a fraternity house over in MIT. So we got together and just did cover tunes and played at the uh, toga parties and whatever. And we decided I had a keyboard player and I put an ad in the uh, local paper and Tom Scholz answered the ad. Of course, Tom had just graduated from MIT with a master's degree in five years and was out in the uh, workforce in Polaroid. So for him, it was a comfortable situation, you know, it was MIT guys, it was a fraternity. So, you know, he was comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, that's when we, we first met and started working together. So Tom has this master's degree, but deep down, he wants to be a musician. He wants to be a rocker. Yeah, at the time, we, he joined as a, a keyboard player. And uh, <laughs> a funny story, when he graduated from, from, uh, from MIT, his parents said, well, what do you want for, for a graduation present? He said, well, I want a Hammond organ. Wow. But his parents didn't want him to play music, so they bought him a Jaguar. <laughs> so it, his family were, uh, were upper class, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, I had, I had never been around a Jaguar before. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I mean, I... Mo most of the guys at the fraternity house were, you know, fairly well to do. You know, they had muscle cars and gotcha. know, all that kind of stuff that, uh, you know, I didn't have. I kind of grew up in middle class family. Yeah. My, my dad had a, uh, auto body shop. So, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, Tom started writing songs. Uh, the first thing we, uh, played of his was uh, what would later become foreplay. as kind of a classical piece. So that's really the first original piece we started to play. And you have uh, you have rhythm guitar credit on four play on the Boston debut. On the record, sure. Um, it's funny too, when this album came out, my brother purchased it. He's six years older than me. I was 12 and I'm listening to this. I don't, four play, I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> I just thought it meant, well, this is the piece of music that plays 
before, before the other one. The yeah. other, yeah, before a long time. So I, I didn't know for until well, I got too. Yeah, that well, that too. too. <laughs> but uh, the actual uh, term foreplay that that was lost on me. So when you guys first go out and tour on the debut Boston album, are you guys? I imagine you only have eight songs. Or you, you're playing this probably the entire album every night. Well, you know, we hadn't really done many shows mm-hmm. before. Uh, so, you know, the first dates they had booked for us were all like nightclubs and, uh, you know, small, small venues. Yeah. So the first shows were out in the Midwest playing uh, nightclubs. And, you know, we didn't have the equipment we needed. We mm-hmm. didn't have people we needed. Uh, we actually went out and bought most of the equipment from uh, used uh, listings. You okay. Know, so we had a van, we'd go up and buy, you know, use Marshall stack, throw it in the back. And, and the, and the people that we hired were just, you know, when we had a rehearsal place, you know, anybody that uh, does lights, oh, this guy does lights. Hey, okay, you're all lighting guys, you know. Wow. So catch is <laughs> so catch it, can. It took, a while, it took a while to come together. So we're, we're in the Midwest and we're, we're doing these nightclub dates. And of course, the record took off immediately. So we had lines around the block waiting to get in these places. And, and if you think about it, the first Boston record is only 38 minutes long. Yeah. So, you know, we really had to, had to stretch. <laughs> you you know? got to fill it out. There's some guitar solos <laughs> and keyboard solos so, and stuff. Know, our, our initial set, you know, we could do like an hour and that, that was, that was pretty much it. But yeah. everybody loved the music so much that, uh, you know, nobody seemed to complain about it. Were you able to, replicate that music live because you know it is a it's a true studio album there are some things and sounds on that album that i would imagine might be hard to replicate in a live setting were you guys able to do it well i got a great story for that the uh the first date we did in a in an arena was in the providence civic center and it was in the fall of 76 the record had only been out for three four months at that point and we were opening for Jeff Beck. Okay. And we we'd never played an arena before. We were actually auditioning a sound man. So everything sounded great on stage, but out in the audience, people were looking at us like, what's going on? There'd be drums, there'd be a singer, there'd be, you know. Yeah. It was a mess. And I'm playing, of course, I'm nervous. It's our first show on a really big stage and I look over to my side and there's Jeff Beck and Joe Perry standing there with the rhyme scores. Oh like, my God. <laughs> so after the show, we, we went back, we met Jeff and of course he was on the same label as us, Epic Records. Yeah. And Jeff said, uh, you know, I, I've heard your record and I didn't think you guys were going to be able to do it live, but, but uh, it sounded great. Just like the record. I was like, wow. You can't, you can't get a better compliment. Yeah. (laughs) And did the, I mean, you know, Boston's a guitar driven and Jeff Beck is a guitar guitarist, but how did you go over with his audience? Cause they're probably there to see Jeff. Did you guys go over? Okay. Uh, Honestly, we, we did really well. Excellent. With all the X we played with the, the first major tour was opening up for black Sabbath and that would seem like an odd pairing, but uh, we did really, really well. The crowd loved us, and and Black Sabbath loved us too because you know we were on the way up. Black Sabbath at that point was kind of fading off, so 
we were selling a lot of tickets and they appreciated that fact. And, and we get along with those guys. Great. In fact, Sib and I went to Black Sabbath shows for years and years after that and still saw the guys and kept in touch. And, oh, that's excellent. Yeah, you know, we, we had some great, great times with those guys. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, you guys are on the way up. So you're, people are coming to see you too. The seats are being filled by Boston fans. And again, I don't know anyone that didn't know that, own that album when I was a kid. Everyone, <laughs> it was everywhere. It was like, it was like Fleetwood Mac rumors would become. I mean, it's just one of those yeah. albums that everyone, everyone owns. When did you guys start headlining with the second album or did you do some headlining shows with no, the we, debut? We were headlining literally six months after the, the record came out. Like I said, we started doing uh, club work for the first couple of months. And then we did uh, a couple of months with Black Sabbath. And then when we got into early 77, which is, you know, six months after the record came out, we were headlining. And again, you know, the album was only 38 minutes yeah, long. How do you we're feel? We're in the arena now. We're the headlining act. So uh, we were really starting to stretch it. And, <laughs> were you and adding any? We, at that point, we had some some other songs that, you know, eventually ended up uh, on the second record. So uh, so you could put those still, in. Still, our headlining show was only about 55 minutes at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, unless you do a couple covers, the audience knows coming in that, well, they've got, They've got the eight songs, so that's what we're going to hear. So, but if you're killing it, then you, you know, doesn't matter if it's a I, short. I don't show. remember anybody complaining that yeah. uh, they didn't get enough. So, it had to be longer than a Ramon show. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, their songs are only two minutes long. Yeah, so. and they, they they were playing thirty songs in the time you guys were playing eight. Here's here's what always uh, has been a bummer for me as a fan. You guys were probably obviously recording some of these live shows, but. We've never, the, that classic lineup of you five guys, we've never got like a live album from back in the day. Do you know if anything like that exists? I guess Tom is uh, in charge of all well, things the, Boston. The only live recording um, that really exists is um, uh, the King Biscuit Flower Hour. Uh, we did one show for them that's still circulating around. And since then, uh, a show we did at the... Um, uh, giant stadium came up on um, oh, what's it called uh, YouTube? No, uh, 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 Wolfgang's Vault. Oh, okay, Wolfgang's, Wolfgang's Vault. Vault. All came right. out with uh, with that show, and it's a complete show uh, in Giant Stadium. Wow, uh, it's worth looking at. It's uh, you know, I I would say that's at our that's, height of our career that's bro. the height i'll have to check that out because I, I know wolfgang's vault but i haven't seen it but i guess i guess i was referring to i can't believe that epic in columbia haven't tried to uh you know release well you know we an did official... record, uh, quite quite a few shows and you know there was talk of there being a live album but you know i think you know tom likes things to be perfect and right. live shows are never perfect so uh you know it never never happened no I, w I want to hear some mistakes when I see a live show. Like if I buy a live album, I want it to really be live. I mean, if someone, yeah. if someone played something off, I want to hear that. I, I, I hate when they tweak it after the fact, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, well, it's like, like seeing the Eagles. It's so perfect. It's, it's so almost, perfect. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but that's what they want. So I guess, uh, yeah. you know, more power to them when you're part of a band that sells, 
I don't know what uh, the two albums together, uh, what 30 million copies or so. How does that, and I hope this isn't too personal of a question. How does that equate to, um, to dollars for you? Like, are you, can you live comfortably because of those two records? You yourself? Yes. Life is good. Okay. Life is good. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have any interest in, in the, uh, publishing of either of the records. So. Right. I, I get artist royalties from the records, and of course, I made the the money we made from from the touring. Sure. When I was with the band. But you know, I've I've had uh, a bunch of other projects since then. And sure. Kept busy. So. And, and we're going to talk about those. I want to. I do want to talk a little bit about "Don't Look Back," and then we'll uh, then we'll move on. With "Don't Look Back," is the tour bigger now? Is there more staging, more lighting? You guys get more oh, money yeah. from the label. Um, getting money from the label is always a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we did have a bigger production. Uh, you know, that's all the band generates all, all that stuff. Uh, you know, by the time we got to the second record, the, the label wasn't really, uh, you know, supporting the tour. So the tour supported themselves. Right. Like exactly. Yeah. That's how. So, it yeah. You know, by the, the second record, we were doing uh, stadiums. We went out and did a, you know, we did the Superdome. We did the Giant Stadium. We did the Tangerine Bowl, uh, you know, Anaheim Stadium. Wow. Uh, played the stadium up in San Francisco. So it was on a, you know, a whole bigger scale at that point. I mean, that must be a dream come true for you. Like you walk out on stage and you see that many people it it's it's like something you can't even describe to someone that's never done it before. Well, I, I remember the Superdome really well because uh, <clears throat> the stage was so high up. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You know, there was a stairway going up up the stage. And of course, at that point, I was wearing, you know, the platform shoes. Sure. And outfit and the whole thing. And, you know, walking... <laughs> So just let me make it to the top here. And then you get to the stage and it's like literally a couple of stories down. So, you know, obviously if you fell off the stage, you're dead. And looking out at, you know, 88,000 people we had at that show was just mind boggling. Yeah. Mind -boggling. That's incredible. Uh, the credits for you for Don't Look Back, lead guitar on Don't Look Back.
amazing, a great song. I, I, I have to be honest, I do love this album as much as the first album. I, I, there's such a nice companion piece. Like you can just play these things back to back seamlessly. Everything's great. You also play lead guitar on Used to Bad News and Don't Be Afraid. are all great songs so thank you as a fan barry because these songs are just killer and again you sell seven million albums which is uh you know that's no small feat usually an album has a sophomore slump seven million albums is not a slump in the least well you know a lot a lot of people said oh well you know the second record didn't do nearly as good as the first one well but, i mean you know if if we had sold seven million on the first one and you know three million on the second that would have been a whole different deal right right but look no one sells no one has a debut like boston that sells that mind-boggling amount of albums so seven million is is solid for sure well i I think we were the the best-selling debut until uh i think guns and roses well that's that's a long time and i think the album celebrates it's gonna be 45 years old this year 2021 that's right that's right. Yeah. Incredible. You know, I think part of the reason it sold so many records also is uh, all the different formats it went mm-hmm. through. You know, when it first came out, people were still using eight tracks. Yeah. And then uh, and they're using cassettes after that. And then the cassettes went to CDs. And then they, then you had to remaster the CD and release it yeah, again. So, you know, we went through all those different formats and people that liked the record they had to have it in the other formats. So I think that probably led to part of why we sold so much also i believe those two for those first two albums were albums that guys liked and girls also liked them <laughs> i mean they're a good point because when we opened for black sabbath it was a largely uh male audience i, I think there are probably more women uh, there for the opening act for the uh, absolutely yeah because these line. you know black sabbath doesn't have a ballad but you guys you guys had some great uh some great crossover songs for men and women if we're going to pigeonhole it like that. But all right, here we go. 1980, the Barry Goudreau solo album. I've always wanted to ask about this album because to me, I I just didn't even understand how it even exists. And here's the reason. (laughs) First of all, I remember going into the record store in 1980 and seeing that this on the shelf, I think there might've only been one or two copies in the record store and the hype sticker probably said featuring members of Boston, you know, yeah. cause, cause your band, you guys were kind of not known. You were known as Boston. No one really knew the individual names of the individual players. You know what I'm saying? 
Right. Yes. And then no, no disrespect, no slight to you guys. Oh yeah. So right. I see that hype sticker and I'm like, Oh, okay. So I, I buy that album. I bring it home. I open it up. And then inside I see you and Brad and Sib. Now Sib especially jumps out at me because of the hair and the look. And I was like, Oh, the, there's three guys from Boston on this album. The singers on this album. Well, then I dropped the needle on this thing. And I mean, from the opening track and the opening riff of Hard Luck, to me, it's a Boston album. I mean, it's, and, and then I started to tell people about this. I'm like, you got to hear this album. It's like the third Boston album. People didn't, wouldn't even know what I was talking about. I'd have to play it for them in my bedroom. This album, I love it. It's such a killer album. But the questions I have are, first of all, how did you get uh, a deal, Barry? Because if Brad got a deal, I would understand that he's, he's the singer from Boston. So he gets the deal. How did you go about getting a solo album deal? Well, this is how it went. The, the last tour I did with Boston was a tour of Europe uh, in the fall of 79. So when we got into 1980, Tom brought the band together and said, I'm, I'm going to take this year off. Okay. I'm not going to record anything this year. If you guys want to do something else, you know, work with another act or do your own record, now would be the time to do it. And, you know, I had written a few songs uh, early on in the Boston days uh, that we did demos of, but none, none of them made the record. So I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll try that. And I wrote the, the first song for it, which was uh, Dreams, which ended up to be the first uh, release. Lost in a life of luxury.
and I had the song together. So, you know, I'm not really a lead singer. So he said, Brad, why don't you come over and sing this for me? Brad came over and sang the song. Of course, you know, Sib, Sib Ash from the, the drummer and I had been uh, friends and bandmates since high school. So if I was going to have somebody play drums, it was Sib because right. I saw Sib every day anyway, you know. <laughs> So Sid played drums on it and, and Brad sang it and, and, you know, Brad enjoyed doing it. And I had some other song ideas and I gave them to Brad and he wrote some lyrics for him. And, you know, we started to have several songs together and we were getting excited about it. <clears throat> so we brought the songs to uh, Tom and played them for him. Said, you know, this is what we've been working on. What do you think? And Tom surprised us by saying, well, I'd like to produce it. Okay. Of course, we had hoped that he would say, I really like that song. I'll consider it for a Boston record. You know, that was our hope. Yeah, because at this point, you're all in on Boston. You guys just want to keep keep going. Right, right. And um, we realized that the record label wouldn't want Tom working on another record they would want him working on a Boston record. So we continued working on, on uh, the record and I realized, well, if I'm going to put this out, you know, with, with Brad and Sib, it's, you know, it's too Boston like, so I, I need to get another element in here. So I, I was introduced to Fran Cosmo through one of our uh, crew members. So, you know, the singer is great, great voice, great guy. So we brought Fran in and he had written a few songs. We recorded his songs and it worked out really well. So at that point, I brought it to the uh, record label to see what uh, what they thought of it. And they said, you know, we love it. Let's put it out. So we did. That's and, how it was. Know, the whole idea was to, to get the record done, get it out, you know, do some promotion on it, maybe a few shows or whatever. We get that all in that time, year, year long time frame that we had, uh, we had gotten. Well, when the album came out, it was probably the sticker you were talking about. There was a sticker on the record. Six million people have heard the sound of his guitar. Let us introduce you to its owner. Okay. And to me, that was saying, well, here's the guy that you don't know about. Here's the other guy we want to introduce you to. Yeah. Well, Tom took that as here's the guy behind Boston. Gotcha. And he was not happy about it. So... And I can see both. I can see both sides of this. I can see how that's. I can get it. I understand. Yeah, yeah. And so, obviously, there was there was an issue there. He complained to the record label. The record label 
you know, kind of pulled back on the promoting of the record and it died, you know, fairly quick death. Yeah. Put a different Tom got us back together at the uh, beginning of uh, 81. And because of the record said, okay, I'm, I'm done. Barry's Barry's out. I'm not going to work with him anymore. So, so first of all, the label could have just changed that sticker to say something else and kept promoting the record. Second, Tom gave you the go ahead to do it. And then yeah, true. then you true. do it. And then he's, then he's, he's mad about it. That's sad. Well, you know, hindsight being 2020, I wouldn't have tried to get it in that year long time frame. You know, I, mm-hmm. I saw it as just something else I was doing outside of Boston. If I had been looking at it, like this is going to be my career, I would have taken a whole different approach to it. So. Right. Well, but, um, you know, I think it's still, it's a good record. I mean, to me, it doesn't sound like it's completely formed yet, I guess would be one mm-hmm. way to put it, but, uh, you know, I'm still proud of it. I mean, I, and again, I, Barry, I love this record and I don't know, I, I guess maybe because when it came out, I was, I wanted another Boston record so badly and there, it, there wasn't one. So this was, this was, and I'm not going to say the next best thing. This was for me just as good. I mean, I love, I appreciate that. I love Fran. I like Fran's three songs too. I kind of thought maybe he was brought in because maybe Brad wasn't allowed to do the entire album because it, then it would be too close to Boston, but you've cleared that up. No, I, I think Brad would have been happy uh, singing the whole, the whole record. I mean, he, he just enjoyed, you know, writing songs and recording and, you know, we, we had a ball doing it. But the, uh, the guitar sound on the album on many of the tracks is the guitar sound that I hear as a non-musician on Boston albums. So that, did beg the question for me as, as a listener, how much of the Boston sound is Barry Goudreau and how much of it is Tom Scholes or is it so intertwined because you guys have known each other for so long. You just guys have like similar styles because. Yeah. Well, I think it, you know, he, he learned a lot from me. I learned a lot from him. Uh, Like I said, when we first met, he was mostly a keyboard player <clears throat> and he was starting to play guitar and, and, you know, he picked it up really quickly. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of his style is similar to mine, but then, you know, he developed so quickly. I picked up a lot from him as well. So, you know, worked in both directions. Well, the two songs that you wrote on this album, uh, by yourself, which are dreams and sailing away, those are terrific songs. You know, what's a fella to do is, is that again, that's got that, Boston guitar sound that I love so much.
Yeah, it's sad that this uh, that this album didn't get the uh, didn't get its due, but it has been uh, has been re released a couple times. Razor and Tie released it on CD, and then um, Rock Candy Records, oh, Candy, yeah, yeah, they've picked up uh, the Barry Goudreau album, Orion the Hunter, and RTZ. So people, you can still get those albums. So go get them. Uh, I also want to say, you know, because we're talking about Brad and Sib, I want to say. You know, we, we say on the show, we say rock in peace because you did lose, you know, two of your, you know, great friends and collaborators. So, you know. Well, uh, some people people may not realize, but Brad was also my brother-in-law. I did not know that. Yeah. My my wife and uh, his wife uh, were his sisters. Yeah. So see that. So family. So he's really so, family. Uh, yeah. We were families were very close and, um, uh, like I said with Sib, Sib and I were friends uh, since I was 15. And uh, we stayed friends. I uh, saw him pretty much every day right up until uh, his death. And just as a strange little bit of trivia for people, Sib, his son-in-law, is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He is, yeah. Because <laughs> I was watching an episode of, I think, Ballers the HBO show. And at the end it had like, it said for Sib, how do you say Sib's last name? I want to get it right. Passion. And his name came up and I was like, well, I know that name. That's the drummer from Boston. So I, you know, I had to pull out the phone, do a quick Google. And I was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. So that's, well, just he little... used, uh, he used part of uh, dreams on that show too. Yes. You're right. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah he, he wanted, um, uh... He wanted something that Sib had played on that wasn't Boston, and that uh, was pretty much that was the the, the Barry Goodrow album, right? Yeah. All right, we're moving on to nineteen. 19- uh, just one one quick note. Absolutely. Uh, um, they're doing a uh, documentary on Sib called "Let There Be Drums," and uh, it's uh, it's just starting to film it now. And uh, of course, I'm going to be one of the talking heads in the movie, and uh, and Dwayne is uh, committed to uh, to being involved as well. And uh, my new engine room record is going to be uh, featured in in the movie as well. So fantastic! That's great. Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent. Um, so in 1984, Orion the Hunter. Now, is the band called Orion, and the album's called The Hunter, or is it the band is Orion the Hunter? Well, you know, I wanted the band to be Orion. Okay. And it turns out that there was an artist in Nashville who had the rights to Orion. <laughs> never heard of him before. I never heard or of him since. since yeah. But he had the rights to the name. So the record label said, well, why don't we call it Orion the Hunter? And I thought, well, okay, we'll call it Orion the Hunter. And most people will just call it Orion anyway. Yeah. Of course, it didn't turn out that way. No, but. Orion the Hunter was what we called it. Um <laughs> Now this you got you got now Fran Cosmo is on lead vocals on this album because I assume Brad is now enmeshed in whatever's happening with Boston recording whatever's happening with I mean Boston is dormant for years and well um, Tom was working on the uh, third third stage record at that point and Brad had committed to uh, singing on that record yeah uh, so. Um, to me, it did seem like time to, to, to move on. And, you know, I yeah. worked with Fran, we got along great. And so, uh, 
you know, we started working on the, the Ryan Hunter album and Fran and I wrote uh, most of the material for it. And Brad, Brad came in and did bits here and there, yeah. sang a little back background, wrote some lyrics for me. And, you know, I think Brad would have been happy singing on much more of it, or even all of it, if I had let him. But uh, yeah. it seemed like it was time to, uh, you know, move on from that. It's it's very incestuous with these two vocalists, uh, Brad and Fran. They're, Fran's in Boston then for the fourth album, and then Brad comes back. Then there's an album called Corporate America where Brad sings half of it and Fran sings half of it. That's kind of like what happened on the Barry Goudreau uh, solo album. So it's well, um, well, the, the, the crazy thing is, you know, Fran sang with me on the Ryan Hunter. And then when I formed RTZ with Brad, right. Brad left Boston and Fran replaced Brad in Boston. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, um, Hey, good for and those then, guys. Then after RTZ ended, Brad went back to Boston and Boston had Fran and Brad. <laughs> I, I know it's, 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 it's crazy. If you look at the, at the family tree, of uh of boston members it's it's wild how it all well, inter- I, I guess i've been pretty good at picking out good lead singers i guess that's what it comes down to. there you go <laughs> you can't you, you and it's so funny because they they're similar and yet so different those two voices uh to me they're very much different but yeah. other people say oh they sound exactly alike i you know yeah i, I don't, don't think they sound it, alike but there are i've been they're... listening to them through through headphones for years so your, your I... entire life right <laughs> okay so orion the hunter you got uh, Bruce Smith on bass and Michael DeRozier, who was uh, no longer in heart at the point at that point. So, yeah, I met uh, Michael. We we did uh, a bunch of shows with Heart over the years, <clears throat> and I knew he had left the band, so I got in touch with him to see if he would be interested. Of course, uh, Heart was on the uh, CBS Records as right. well, so it was kind of in house too, and. Uh, I flew him out and he lived at my house here for, for six months or so. And we put the record together and, uh, you know, worked out really good. And are you, uh, so you, you've still remained a relationship with Columbia portrait, Epic, whatever umbrella you want to put it under because, uh, they release Orion the Hunter. So do you do the same thing again? Do you, do you write the songs and record them, then present them? Or did you get the deal first? No, we, we had uh, a lot of the songs demoed out first. Mm-hmm. And I brought him to uh, Lenny Pizzi, who uh, was at the label at the time. And uh, he handled Boston, uh, you know, when uh, when I was with Boston. And, uh, you know, he and I co-produced a record. Uh, you know, I, I've kept in touch with Lenny through the years, too. In fact, I just uh, spoke to him last week. And Lenny Pizzi, a couple years after... Uh co-producing this album he co-produces uh cindy lopper's true colors cindy albums. Yeah. yeah so yeah. big success and again uh shout out to rock candy records who have uh re-released these barry goudreau albums including orion the hunter we finally can hear it it sounds fantastic it just it sounds so good and brad uh, does some background vocals on the song all those years
then you guys had some um, some FM play with uh, So You Ran, which is a, a great tune. Yeah, you know, at, at this time, uh, MTV was the thing. Yeah. You know, and, and we did a video for So You Ran, and, you know, we got some okay play at MTV, but we didn't really get into that, that you know, high repeat you know they played it like twice a day which really wasn't enough to, no. to break through so We toured. We did a tour uh, opening for uh, Aerosmith. Aerosmith uh, was doing their "Back in the Saddle" tour, which was when all the original band, band members got back together. Right. But they weren't really together. Put it that way. They, they weren't. They, they weren't. Were still, they were still they a mess. All together up here. Right. And uh, wow, what a crazy tour that was! Uh, you know, they they had stiffed people so many times that. You know, we'd come into to a city and they wouldn't have sold any tickets because nobody would buy a ticket because they thought, you know, Aerosmith, they're not going to show up. And then the, the local radio station would say, Aerosmith is at the venue doing their sound check and we will get a walk up and fill the room. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, you know, that was a really interesting tour. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I can't think of a band that came back stronger than Aerosmith. Like they were really, they were really at the bottom. They, they just, I, I never, I never thought Aerosmith would come back, but bravo, they did. What, um, now they're a mess. What, what was it like for you on the road? Were you, were you, a, a, a what do I want to say? A drug guy? Or were you just all about the music? I mean, by the time of the Ryan, the Hunter, I, you know, I was married. Uh, I didn't have kids yet, but yeah. I, I was married, and you know, I I was kicking back. I, you know, I was never a big big drug user. Right. Uh, the other guys in the band weren't into that at all. Michael DeRozier, you know, he worked out every day with weights and stuff. You know, <laughs> and ate health food and. You know. <laughs> so the opposite of Aerosmith for sure, Michael DeRozier. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And in regard to the "So You Ran" video, I mean, this is really your first foray into a music video at this point oh yeah yeah and it, it was uh we shot it right here and uh i grew up in in uh, lynn massachusetts and uh most of the video was shot uh in my hometown and no no offense to you guys you guys are fine looking gentlemen but you're not duran duran at the point so it's <laughs> it is going to be hard to get some airplay you know what i mean 
Yeah, well, you know, the single did pretty well. I think we made it up to, uh, I don't know, 50 or something like that. And But we never got to the point where we broke through with it. Yeah, but it's a it's it's a great album. I still uh, I I recommend this one too. I mean, you know the songs are good, playing's good, everything's great. So yeah. again, seek out Orion the Hunter. So then it's you know by my count, it's like seven years until you have a, a new release. Doesn't mean you're not doing things. Doesn't mean you're not writing, recording demos and all that. But your next. Uh, your next album is RTZ, yeah. Return to Zero. So again, the band is called RTZ, and the album's Return to Zero. Right. Okay. Right. And you got Bradley Delt back, your your buddy. Yeah, working. I actually, um, you know, I started working on new material for, for the RTZ record. Of course, it wasn't called RTZ right. at that point. And I, I was working with another singer, uh, uh, Fergie Fredrickson. Oh, who, and yes. Then, uh, the he, band Toto. Yes. And great guy, you know, loved the guy. We we did a bunch of demos and, and we actually did a, a, a showcase for John Collada. I, yeah, I'm sure you heard of John Collada. Oh, I, I, I'm he, picturing he, him right now. He was the guy behind uh, Aerosmith's return. The long beard. Was, yeah. Long beard. Yeah. White we suit. Did, with really funny voice. Right. <laughs> so anyway, we, we did a, a showcase for, for John Claudner and uh, he said, you know what, I, I don't hear it. And, you know, we had been working on for months on it and it was to the point where Fergie needed something. He needed to make money. Okay. And he said, you know what, this has been great, but, you know, I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. And, and he left. So, I pulled Brad back into the fold again. I said, oh, I got some songs here. You want to come over and sing some songs for me? And he did, and he enjoyed it. And, and you know, it just kind of coalesced, and uh, we ended up uh, doing a record for Warner Brothers. Look, if, you're, if your singer leaves and you're, the guy that comes in to replace him is Bradley Delp, you're doing okay. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> I got got a spread. It's just was one of the best there ever was. I mean, you know, if he was sitting next to you and he was singing, it it sounded like his voice was, was uh, through all this different equipment and, and, and modulated and everything else, but it wasn't, it was just, his voice was just beautiful. Well, I was, I was uh, lucky enough to see him perform in one of the later incarnations of Boston, which was, you know, with just Tom and Brad, um, it was out here in LA at the universal amphitheater. And, uh, I'm so glad that I was at that show. Cause it was, he was on point just so good. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. yeah, it's like an angel. It really, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Just a fantastic vocalist. So return to zero produced by Chris Lord Alge comes out in July, uh, of 1991, which if we know what happens with music, very soon after this release, it gets all, you know, grunge comes in. Uh, as they say, timing is everything. Yeah. So you. And if the RTZ record had come out a year earlier or maybe even six months earlier, I think it would have been a whole different uh, thing. But grunge just kicked this in the ass. But what's funny to me is the single uh, Until Your Love Comes Back Around, I'm just looking at the date, 
It gets up to number 26 in March of 92. Yeah. So that means that the record label was still, they were still working the album for you. I mean. Well, actually, there's a story there. That was actually the second single. The first single was uh, uh, Face the Music. I can't blame you. Nobody wants to be the fool. Face the music. It's all in front of you. You can get it if you really try. You can get it if you don't ask why. You know, we were working with uh, Irving Azoff at that point. You know, it was on Giant Records. That was Irving's yep. uh, imprint on uh, Warner Brothers. He's the guy to work with. These, are the, pe- and, these um, are the people you want to work with. Well, he came to us. He said, well, you know, we'll, we'll do a video. Here's uh, director's uh, clips of three different directors and pick one of these directors. Yep. Well, we picked one. It was actually Bob Dylan's son. Uh Ben, I think it was his first name. Okay. So, you know, we're all scheduled to, to do our first video, and we get a call that they've cut the budget on the video. And, and Dylan calls us and says, you know, I can't do everything I was going to do. You know, I don't know if we should go ahead. And we said, you know what, full speed ahead. We're going to go and we're going to do it anyway. So we went out and he had all these different setups. But he said, well, I got all this set up, but I'm not going to be able to use that. And I got all this, but I can't use that. So the video ended up being pretty much the band standing on this pedestal. And that was it. That was the video. And honestly, it sucked. (laughs) So we sent it to to Irving and Irving says, oh, that video sucks. Why'd you pick (laughs) that guy? It was, well, you gave us three choices. That's the one we picked, you know? So, you know, we went back and forth. We went back and forth. The song you know, Face of Music was coming up in the charts. I yeah. think, again, it made it up into the probably in the 50s. And he finally said, okay, I'll do another video. And we got another director. We went and did another video, which I thought came out really well. Excellent. But the song was dropping down on the charts. And again, you know, MTV only gave us minor airplay, minor, you know, video play. And it didn't happen. So... Move on, and you know we've been out on tour. We've you know done a, done a bunch of shows and so forth. And uh, a radio station in the Baltimore, Washington area starts playing until your love comes back around, and it catches on. Wow! And it's getting really good. It ends up being the number one song in that area. But now I'm back out on the street. so hard trying to find a place where my baby might be staying 
So we go back to Irving. So we got a number one song. You know, we need to do a video. You know, I did everything I said I was going to do. And, you know, you got to do it. You know. So he found a, a, a woman up in Canada who would do a, a video on the cheap. Okay. And we went up to Canada and did the black and white video for Until Your Love Comes Back Around, which I thought came out fantastically well. I thought it was really great. But again... Timing being everything, yeah. the song was starting to go down in the charts. And by the time the video came out, we didn't get a whole lot of airplay. It didn't happen. Yeah. The video and the video and the song have to be uh, in sync with each other in order for everything to, the stars to align. Yeah. But still, I mean, you know, number, what did I say? Number 20, 26? That's, yeah. you know, the, I mean, at this point you are, you know, what almost 20 years into your career and you're still, you know, able to have some chart success, which is, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, how do you measure success? You know, right. if you measure it to 17 million records, you're going to lose every time. Right, right, right. <laughs> you can't, you can't compare everything with that because you're done. Yeah. yeah. But if you compare it to, you know, most acts, you know, it's, you know, pretty successful. But again, the RTZ album, it's, it's, it's excellent. It's got uh, great production Great playing, guitar, vocals, the songs are there. It's it's a really, really stellar album. So yeah, thank you. Another one I want people to go. I want people to listen to this, Barry, and then go and buy these records all over again or for the first time. That's what the goal always is of this show. They're fantastic. Well, you know, I'm still working with those guys. Uh, like I said before, Brian, I'm working with Brian Mace. Uh, he's singing lead and playing keyboards in, in my band. He joined as the keyboard player in Ryan the Hunter back uh, when we went out on tour for the yeah. first time. And then uh, he was the keyboard player in uh, RTZ as well. And uh, Tim Archibald played bass in RTZ, and he is a member of the new band as well. So I've stuck with those guys ever since uh the uh, early nineties. Well, again, I like that you formed this, uh, this brotherhood of sorts with these, uh, these musicians you've worked with all over the years. I think that's fantastic. And I wish you continued success and great success with the, with the new project. And what, uh, what about a Barry Goudreau book? Have you ever thought about writing all the, it sounds like you have a bunch of stories that we only touched the surface on today. Well, I've got a story there too. <laughs> <laughs> Can we hear that I actually, one? I actually did write a book. Uh, 
you know, I, I was thinking about it at one point. So I, I wrote uh, a couple of chapters <clears throat> and um, one of my wife's girlfriends says, gee, I, I know this woman who's a successful writer. And it turns out that uh, th this woman had had a couple of best-selling books. So okay. I went to her and I said, you know, I'm thinking about writing a book. And she said, what do you got? And I gave her what I had written. She says, yeah, I'll do this. And we ended up putting a whole book together. And we went to publishers to publish the book. And I said, you know, you know, a little worried that there might be some legal uh, legal issues with this, you know. And, and she said, well, don't worry, you know, the, the publishers will indemnify you against any lawsuits. So we shopped the book and, and uh, you know, the publishers liked the book. They said, mm -hmm. yeah, we like the book, you know, we'll, we'll put it out, but you have to indemnify us. Oh. <laughs> I said, oh, no, I don't think that's going to happen. No. So, uh I have a book uh, on a on a, a, a you know a, a disc here and uh, someday maybe I don't think anybody's ever going to see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, look, I as a fan, I hope someday we do get to read that. And uh, that's a lot of hard work to put in to something that's going to sit on the shelf. So, well, you know what? It was actually a really really good experience for me. I literally put a whole whole year into it and. Uh, you know, looking back over my life and and uh, and, and also just the skill of uh, you know putting it together. She yeah. was a super editor. You know, I did all the writing; she did the editing. Uh, and uh, I mean, it was really a, a great experience, even if only a handful of people ever see it. Probably therapeutic. You probably maybe worked through some things that maybe were bothering you all these years. Yeah, just to well, put them out know, on paper. I, I, I finished the book right after. Uh, Brad's death. Mm -hmm. So the book ended with with Brad's death. And yeah. Obviously, since then a lot more has happened. You know, obviously Sib's Sib's death since then. Yeah. So uh, if I were ever to do it, obviously I'd have to go back and uh, and amend it. Right. Well, I look forward to you in the uh, in the Sib documentary when that comes out. That'll be nice. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's really gonna really gonna be great. The people involved have. Uh, done several documentaries before that uh were really good so uh you know have really high hopes for it very cool there's nothing like a great rock doc everyone likes them <laughs> now before we go i just want to tell people you can go to barrygoodrow.com you and barry you have a twitter account but you're not really active on twitter is that fair to say no, no I'm, I'm i'm not uh Actually, we're, I've got somebody uh, working with the, uh, the Facebook uh, account, and okay. we're, we're becoming more, more active with that. Uh, uh, it, there's also another website. I've got the BarryGoodrow.com, but there's also BarryGoodrow'sEngineRoom.com. Oh, okay, good, uh, good, good. If you go to one, it'll send you to the other. But uh, All right. You know, there's some, uh, the video up there, and uh, you'll be able to uh, access the music through there as well. Perfect. And I would like you to suggest what our playout song for this episode would be. What Barry Goudreau song from your entire career, new, old, whatever, would you like me to play out? I know it's tough. It is tough, but uh, rather, I would rather look forward than look back. So let's put uh, the road, the, the song I, I sent you today. All right. This is brand new Barry Goudreau music. Please enjoy the road. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. It's been great. 
On a smoky, dusty road We fell asleep in Texas I was in Texas when I woke She sang me a song It was so sweet It was the road Played my guitar in Mississippi And I opened up my case She handed me a silver dollar And her hand caressed my face She sang me a song It was so sweet It was the road the road. 